Welcome to Podcast Mac. Uh, welcome to Podcast Maximus. Uh, this what are we doing? This episode we're doing till all are one. Welcome. Uh, I'm Tom McNally. He's Stuart Webb. You're Marion Hilditch. And uh, do, do you want to start again, Tom? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Podcast Maximus. I'm Tom McNally, and this is Stuart Webb. Hello, everyone. That was Stuart Webb, and this is Marion Hilditch. Hi. That was Marion Hilditch. A, I've got to say, Tom, you've caught me doing one of my favourite things. What could that be? Well, I'm eating a crumpet with a cup of tea, and it's uh, very nice. It's uh, sadly not 11 o'clock, so I've broken the traditional rule we discussed about in our last episode. This is a reference. It is, it's a callback. Marion, are you eating a crumpet? That that was not a uh, radiophonic sound effect there. That was a practical crumpet, as actors call them. Keep it away from the mic. <laughs> it's also quite cold and horrible. But I did it for the cause. For, for... Marion, do you have a crumpet to eat for the cause? I've already eaten them all because we are in our late recording. We, we've been talking about everything and nothing for the past many hours. It's been pleasant. We were waiting for the man without crumpets to get here. <laughs> yes, I have sworn a sacred vow to never eat crumpets. <laughs> and you temptresses aren't going to make me go back on that. Uh, we have a unified show for you today where we're going to look at the Till All Are One issues, both pre-revolution and post-revolution and mid-revolution. Won't you like that? Uh, but first, though, we have some uh, old business to deal with. It isn't just crumpets. Uh, for various reasons, our last episode w- took a couple of months to put up about the App Nation, because we're all very busy, exciting people. Uh, so since we recorded that, all sorts of new information about the App Nation have gone up that uh, we thought we'd share with some of our listeners, which includes the fact that the tickets are available from the App Nation website, as are the uh, hotel rooms. Just go to the TF Nation website and follow the instructions. There are still rooms there. There's all sorts of advice and help there for, to, to uh, assist you through it. Uh, they've also announced a whole load of guests uh, since the last episode, including Josh Perez, who I think was a guest uh, they were alluding to uh, in the last episode. Man loves pizza. If you ever see him, give him a pizza. That's basically uh, his thing. Uh, Bob Budiansky is going to be there. Uh, the godfather of Transformers, who looks amazingly like the bloke from Ghostbusters 2 and Ali McBeal. Uh, so I'll be asking him about that. Uh, he, Venus, how does he feel about pizza? He's, a, he's from New Jersey, so I guess he, he likes pizza. That's a very New Yorker sort of thing, isn't it? Eating pizza, I imagine. Venus Terzo from uh, Beast Wars, Black Arachnia, is going to be there too. Very exciting. Uh, John Paul Bow, Jack Lawrence. Our new Lost Light artist who will be coming to Tiff Nation for the first time. And yesterday we had a new announcement and Kei Zama from Japan, the artist on Optimus Prime, is also coming back to Tiff Nation. And uh, for those of you who were at Tiff Nation last year, Kei had a lot of bad luck with the luggage. 
So she arrived at Nation with not prints and not commissions. Um, so I think we're all crossing fingers for UK, and I hope everything goes well this time. And uh, we're really looking forward to seeing you. Yeah, so that's uh, our TF Nation catch up. So do go uh, check out their website, which will be included in the, the details about this episode. It should be quite a fun convention. And of course, all three of us will be there. Yes, so I need to buy my tickets. So, Stuart, you've got me a room, haven't you? <laughs> yes, I have, Tom. <laughs> I don't know what I was laughing about. What's wrong with me today? Sorry. We all have um, rooms, and we're all planning on being there for the duration of the convention, yeah? When are you getting there, Tom? I don't know. <laughs> I need to, like, you need to find out what kind of room Stuart's got you. <laughs> Hopefully on the Saturday, because that's the day you have a room. So if you turn up any other day, you won't be having a room. Oh, yeah, I can find a nice fountain to sleep in. <laughs> But uh, we'll put, I imagine we'll be recording something there. Okay, so, Till All Are One, that oh. is the new comic that came out like a year ago. How long has it been now? Seven months, isn't it? Uh, if it's issue seven, let's just come out. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a little while now. I-, I want to say summer. Would that make it seven months? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it was uh, around the time Sins of Wreckers wrapped up. Because uh-huh. uh, it effectively replaced that in the schedule, so it's... Uh, it's when that finish. TF Wiki informs me it was the 15th of June. So yeah, um, the series that got away with it that didn't get renumbered because it was too close to number one to get renumbered when the big revolution happened. <laughs> it sort of makes it seem like they hadn't really planned that that far in advance. I would never suggest such a thing. <laughs> but I think that worked to the book's benefit, uh, I would say. It... Uh, didn't get caught up in things like Titus Returns too much. So it sort of, much like more of a BTI did during Combiner Wars, it was able to sort of carry on doing its own thing without uh, too much uh, other stuff going on with it. Mm. Mm. Well, so, uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say that more than BTI slash Lost Light got away with it too, in, in that the, the story has pretty much picked up exactly where it left off and nothing much has changed other than the creative. And, well, we don't know if anything has changed story-wise or what the intention was, but on the face of it, it's just picked up and interrupted. But back to Tilara 1. So Tilara 1 is sort of, you might say, the spiritual successor to a success to Windblade, uh, with uh, plot lines that may be feeding down from the first season of Robots in Disguise. Mm-hmm. And it certainly starts off on a very similar tone. Yeah, and it picks up most of the main cast from Windblade. Uh, Marion, you weren't on our Windblade episode, if I remember correctly, he says. Uh, so what did you think of that series, uh, sort of very briefly? Yeah, I thought Windblade had a lot of strengths. The first Windblade, uh, I, I, I really wanted to get into it, but it kind of let me down in the end. I, uh, I couldn't get behind the plot resolution of, the, of that who done it. I, I didn't feel like it. I th- a lot has been said about Chromia and, you know, what she did and why she did it. And to me, I think that the problem I had with it was not so much why Chromia did what she did. It was the fact that the author seemed to think that it was perfectly justifiable to have Chromia behave in this way. And I think that bothered me about that book. I know, I know that's a very common thread and complaint. I don't really see that myself. I, um, I, I didn't really feel that the story justified what she had to say i think i think um we'll get to this uh more a bit later but it seems that because 
um, Margaret Scott comes from a television writing expertise, I think um, I don't know the, 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 the structure of these comics seems to be very episodic uh-huh. in a way that you, know, you introduce it here and then it's all going to get pulled out and what's and also like it, it feels like she's paying a lot of attention to modern TV shows where someone's motivations seem like X here but then later on you find out that they're actually Y. I mean it's not groundbreaking stuff but it just seems like very structured in a way that stuff is deliberately obscured or ambiguous um and i don't don't think that that necessarily means that we should because that's not being addressed right now that that's being tacitly approved of i I can accept that uh, as a uh you know as a defense if you will Uh, the only thing that's that's kind of making me question i know a bit more is that Windblade was a limited series it was a Mm. it was billed as such so you were expecting it to be quite self-contained there was nothing to say that the story was being picked up further down the line Mm, good point i did uh, absolutely adore the art um i like the fact that we were having an all uh, female creative team just to you know address the balance a little bit and um i had high hopes for windblade 2 which happened during combiner wars but I thought that that just then went all over the place, uh, both with the artist suddenly pulling out, or um, I, I don't know what happened there behind the scenes. I know that there was some issue with Sarah. I think she uh, she had to go sick. In any case, uh, both story-wise and visually, I thought that that second, what was meant to be a second Windblade book, just it makes no sense to me as a standalone volume of work. But if I am to look back now and, you know, pick up that whole thread, the whole storyline shows from the start, from Windblade's introduction in Dark Cybertron and, you know, where we are now, you know, I'm, I'm a bit happier with it. But I think it's been coming very slowly together and I have to not overthink it. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think we're, we're all pretty much on the same page about uh, Wingblade, Wingblade's prior adventures uh, then. I'm, I'm pretty much with you, Marion, as well, about Chromia, though, as we'll discuss. I think you know, how she was used in this second, uh, of this follow-up, I did quite like. Uh, so basically, uh, to all of one, then there are sort of three sections that were chunks we're going to talk about, starting with what comprises the first trade, uh, which is the first four issues. So what do we think of this, then, people? I really liked it. I really liked the the street level uh, focus on the Decepticons and um, on civilians. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I I very much enjoy uh, Sarah Peter Duroche's art, and I liked the more yeah the arc kind of story. It, that was that felt a lot more self contained, and there were things that were coming out of it that may be picked up later and you know there's continuity to where we are now but uh, even as a standalone as a trade as it stands i think it's uh, a very good book mm, and it feels yeah. like a first episode yeah in, in again to come back to this it feels this like lens a, of... a three-parter opening a new series oh really I, yeah to me it feels like like the whole trade feels like one like 40 minute episode yeah the extended one coming. Yeah. 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 yeah I, mean, I, I, I really enjoyed it as well. I think it's uh, interesting how, as you say, it sort of works as a self-contained unit, but it also picks up on all these things that uh, 
either direct plot lines like Starscream thing from early Robots in the Skies, which I always thought was what Barber did best as well. So it was great to see that being picked up on again. And uh, thematic things like the, the discussion of police brutality and mm. uh, uh, sort of a Black Lives Matter analogies, which a bit of Robots in the Skies has done as well. And uh, there's a bit, bit, a bit of it in more than BTI too with Fortress Maximus. Optimus Prime opens with a uh, uh, police brutality, you know, someone killed in detention. In flashback, Steve Biko yeah. style. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so sort of, so um, all these things going on between all the books that sort of play off each other. But you don't need to read all the books to get, but it, 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 it enriches it if you're reading all of them, which I think they've been doing quite well at the moment. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed with that. Um, as far as I'm aware, it's a pretty... It's it's it, overseas. It seems like quite a straightforward um, problem, but as I take it in the states, um, yeah, you can really get yourself into trouble by siding with Black Lives Matter and siding with like victims of police brutality. Um, That's because all so... lives matter, Tom. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, oh. how could I forget? Um, so. Uh, yeah, you really have to. I think um, these comics will probably be remembered for taking that stance more than anything else that um, seems obvious now. Uh, I think. I think uh, at a at a strange time, they're taking pains to examine this from a point of view that is is yeah is is politically dissident. Strangely enough. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there's quite a lot of political commentary currently in uh, all Transformers comics, and one of its has certainly always been full of it. Well, as has Robots in Disguise, you know, um, Windblade as well from the beginning, as far as I can think. And uh, I like that the themes are changing. Um, mm. it's, it's not always looking at the same problem, if you will. It's examining a range of issues, and in Tomorrow One, again in the, in the first um, story. We also have, uh, you know, the issue of bloody foreigners coming over here and drinking our drinks, you know. So, yeah, it seems to be, it's not, um, at times perhaps it becomes the plot, but at other times it just seems to be, it's this undercurrent. Yeah, we start off with very, like, Shakespearean, quite grand politics um, with Robots in Disguise. Uh, Starscream is a very Shakespearean, very classical character. But then, yeah, I, 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 I agree. It really is nice to see those things now being mapped to what's happening in the real world. Uh, speaking of Starscream, uh, one thing, uh, so we talked in the uh, Titans Return episode about Sentinel Prime's a Trump-like figure. And I think uh, there's a fair... I think it gets more overt as the series goes on, as if maybe it wasn't quite intentional to start with, and then they decided to start doing it at least more as it went on, but it does feel as if Starscream is very Trump analogous, this sort of guy who sees power in a dodgy way, he didn't even have an election <laughs> in, in the end. Can I, can I just say, I object to sweet, kind, lovable Starscream being compared <laughs> to Donald Trump. I, I will not have this. <laughs> a, lo a lot of his speeches to the council read like the sort of thing Trump would say in his rallies before he was elected, uh, sort of around the time this was probably being written, where he's just coming in and basically not really saying anything, but insulting everybody. Uh, especially one in the 
yeah, the second set of issues uh, we'll be talking about too, where he's like starting his speech and going, blah, blah, you're all shit, basically. And it's like, that's very, very Trump. Uh, and also, he's in mental instability, which other characters are starting to notice now as well, where he's talking to somebody who isn't there all the time. Plus, of course, the first arc is about his attempts to cover up anybody finding out about his covert dealings with the <laughs> Russian stroke abaticons before he came to power, which is almost too perfect. I, I object on every possible level. Um, to me, Starscream is actually Frank Underwood. Frank Underwood is a far more clever, cunning, capable person and self-serving person than Donald Trump is. Donald Trump is just deluded. Um, can you explain for me uh, who is Frank Underwood? Oh, okay. So Frank Underwood is the American version of uh, Frank Urquhart, I think is his original oh, name, in, yes. in House of Cards. Oh, okay. You might think that I could have possibly comment. That's the, that's the one. Yeah, I think that. I mean, Starscream does seem too clever to be <laughs> to be a Trump. He's analog. talking to a dead little yellow guy all the time, Fred Fox. So did FDR. Well, Frank Frank Underwood talks to the camera throughout oh, does uh, he? the series. Oh, yeah, that maps that maps very well. Oh, but he, um, he he knows he's in a TV show though. That uh, makes him smarter than everybody else. That's not talking to. <laughs> right, right, let's probably just turn out to be there. Which it makes him Deadpool. It makes him swear. Oh my god! <laughs> there, there is there is a bit, uh, Stuart, that just occurred to me where Starscream he's, he's at the council. And he says he says that the Eukaryans are the most annoying delegates. That struck me as a as a tweet of some sort. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think in the broadest possible terms, and that he's an unpopular demagogue. Um, that maps to Trump and that uh, but I think but yeah Starscream's different because he is genuinely talented and um, you know clever and, and quite good at speeches mm -hmm. and well I mean uh, I, I'm skipping ahead again but I mean about when he's given the rallying speech to all the ships in the second arc he does start by saying you are all a bunch of dicks basically <laughs> which I'm not sure it's the best motivational speech I could ever have been given yeah I did like that bit um uh, and here so here's here's something i've been thinking about for a while i want to run this by you since we're on the topic do I, i'm coming to the idea that transformers as a franchise from its origins and from its um iconography um and ha and, and probably from the way that your average person on the street responds to it i think it's quite a right-wing franchise would you agree Ah, well, I think obviously because it's been written and created by so many people over the years, you could probably find left and right wing things all over the place. I suppose because it's a military franchise where even the good guys are led by a military dictator uh, who is based on John Wayne. A, a religiously selected John Wayne. Yeah, it's uh, chosen by a glowing bit of God to, to lead... <laughs> Uh, but it, it would generally be seen as more towards the right than the, uh, the left. Uh, obviously, the people like James and uh, others have deconstructed that quite heavily over the years as well. So it sort of it swings back and forth. 
Yeah, but I'd say that they, the 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 comics like Tallulah One and Roberts in Disguise and Optimus Prime and uh, More Than Meets the Eye, I think they're they're working quite well. I think they're they're mining the friction between the franchise at its roots as being about consumer goods and cars and military jets uh, with this Cold War origin. Um, and, and, you know, I'm trying, trying to, uh, you know, find what's really bad. I think that's why this, this police brutality arc uh, is landing so satis- with such satisfaction. Oh, not even an arc. This police brutality theme is because that's where you have, you know, something which is supposed to be one thing is in fact rotten to its core. Um, and I think that speaks for Transformers as a as a whole. I, th- I think, um, yeah, I think that the militaristic, um, very capitalist core of it uh, is something that is being pushed against rather than uh, than it going along with this story. Yeah, I I agree with what Shia was saying in that. Every writer has tried to put a stamp on it and a tape on it. I also agree with the fact that Transformers, as was conceived, and the very original idea of Transformers was very much, as you say, you know, very capitalist sort of concept. The West is right, the East is wrong. Uh, you know, brave Autobots are the heroes, and evil Decepticons are just the bad guys. As a capitalist franchise, though, it is about how your consumer goods are trying to kill you. So you can always take that as anti-capitalist. Don't buy that tape deck. It will mess you up. You you could yeah, or you know, buy cars, don't buy planes. <laughs> I, either way, you know. I mean there's that thing uh, with the films where the, the US military was initially quite reluctant to uh provide support on them because their vehicles are gonna be all the bad guys. And they're like, does that make us look bad? Are we the bad guys? Uh, but they, they eventually had their arms twisted into it. Uh, I think because they were convinced that, you know, the bad guys are cool, so this will make you look cool, which is an interesting oh, really, glimpse into the American military psychology. It really is that Mitchell and Webb sketch, isn't it? And, uh, but, yeah, I think, again, as you're saying, Tom, that it, it is being turned on its head a little bit, and I think we've reached the, uh, the sort of self-realisation era now of, uh, you know, is, is this really right um, a lot of it, I think for me, it started with Megatron Origin uh, when you have this kind of sympathetic look uh, on Megatron and how the Decepticon started. It kind of wasn't quite there with Megatron Origin, but it certainly tried to show you a little bit more about it. And then obviously, um, you have Chaos Theory, and then you have, you know, and uh, all the other backstories we've had about Megatron and uh, where he came from, how it started, and it, it carries on to now in Optimus Prime and the flashbacks. That uh, actually things were never that black and white. Actually, the Decepticons were rebelling against something they had every right to rebel against. But what happened after was the problem. And uh, we are now in a place where we kind of have to all go, you know, maybe we should rethink this whole thing. And uh, it's just gone wrong. Okay, it's gone wrong on both ends. We've, you know, um, we need to, uh, we need to try again. And I suppose it's interesting, one of the main voices of reason in this book, uh, especially on the police brutality issue, is Ironhide, who would traditionally be the really right-wing, oh, let's go beat the crap out of these Decepticons. When are we going to start killing Decepticons, Prime? That's what I really want to do in the start of the film uh, style character. Mm. 
Yeah, I think we we have a lot of uh, a lot of introspection, more than once, where new characters, you know, colonists and what have you, are coming in and sort of jumping to quick conclusions about what the war was about, or you know, what the characters are about, and keep getting told repeatedly, "I think you need to go speak to more people," mm. uh, because it's just not as simple as that. Um, I, th- I think you, uh, that brings up a really good point, Stuart, uh, as well about Ironhide. I guess if we're if we're going to be looking at Till All Are One through this you know, modern politics lens, having this character who's established as old, who's who's you know a nineteen eighty four character who comes from you know from that pool of thought, of hi- even him being horrified by the way things have gone, you can kind of imagine him as just like a John McCain sort of died in the wool conservative who um you know has seen service and knows knows uh well you know at least claims to know where the lies begin uh, and where the truth ends um yeah he he is i suppose a lot of the protagonists in this book are kind of uh, the conscious of the book but the book has many overlapping and sometimes contradictory uh senses of a moral compass which i quite enjoy I suppose if you were, if I were to criticise it a little bit, it's an understandable thing because it's got to have a narrative and work as a story as well. It's, as a as an analogy, it does get resolved quite easily. The whole police brutality thing, it's like <laughs> I'd hide just replaces all the police. And by the sort of second arc, but the guys from the pub problems. Well, so oh, that was quite easy. We just get rid of all these badgeless guys, and we'll do it. Uh, we'll, we'll still be called the badgeless, but we'll wear black badges. Not sure, sure what's going on there, but so it's, that, 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 that's where the real life counterpart falls down. I mean, because you can't imagine that in America, well, yeah, let's get rid of all the police, so we'll get uh, just a lynch mob. There's some guys up the street to come do it. That will probably none of them will have any biases or issues. It'll be much better. What was it? A hundred thousand national guard or something? Oh God! Yeah, very, 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 um, very adroit. Oof. Uh, the, the other thing I quite liked in first arc is it's sort of in, in more of a BTI. We have a look at a lot of Autobots adjusting to post-war life, and a, a couple of Decepticons as well. But it's mainly very Autobots focus. Uh, our first arc here gives us maybe our first real look. Because the other characters have tended to be very busy in uh, Robots in the Skies and Wingblade and that. I first we'll look at the Decepticons are just seen, uh, sort of rank and file Decepticons are just seen to civilian life through the Combaticons, where there is a conflict between them, between Blastoff and Onslaught over what they want to do with their lives now. Uh, between the guys like, yeah, let's move on. And is it really worth it if the guys are like, yeah, let's start it all up again? Um, yeah, which I quite enjoyed. I th- I, their their relationship, of course, is is pretty uh, pretty pivotal to the first book, to the first arc. Uh, yeah, I think it, it nails it quite well. Um, you get the feeling that these guys are very fond of each other and do act like a family in a way that uh, Transformers fiction often tries to go for and fails. Um, it's kind of complicated by the fact they all seem to be sort of the same age, except maybe onslaught. But yeah, you can really you can you can pin fraternal and paternal and even maternal um, emotions to them all. And I think that really this kind of um, rehabilitation of Transformers character types that started, I guess, um, with Death of Optimus Prime, we're just trying to bring these relationships into the toolbox they can be used 
and you know we don't have to have vortex marrying blast off or anything uh showy like that but yeah you can start now codifying them as as a family unit where before that wasn't really possible to do there was just no precedent for that in the western fiction i was just thinking actually about um friendships and um and I think that despite all the original criticism of how the Nautica affair was handled. Like Chromia, you mean? Chromia. Yeah, you mean. Chromia. I do mean Chromia. Um, so yeah, despite the Chromia gate incident, I think in the end I liked how that friendship played out. Uh, with uh, Chromia basically, uh, Windblade I suppose, uh, kind of putting their friendship through the ringer, but doing it very consciously, you know, saying, you know, this is, I think this is going to end well, but, you know, I'll have stand by you on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm not big on the big sacrifice in the end. You know, it was all very dramatic. And, uh, but uh, in just in that sense, like in a very kind of pure friendship sense, uh, I liked how that story evolved. Yeah, but let's talk about Wingblade uh, as as really the lead character. Yes, I liked a lot of her work in this arc. I like the fact that Starstream had a whole lot of her, but she's been uh, a bit compromised as well. I suppose in my Trump analogy, if I was going to make it really tortuous <laughs> and unlikely, she, she would be the Hillary Clinton. In fact, you've got Starstream going, oh, look at this thing you've did. Oh, you terrible person. When he's done so much more, it's worse. But, oh, you've got emails. Ooh. But, uh, yeah, I, I like the... the uh, the treatment of Wingblade and uh, compromising and uh, sort of uh, uh, becoming strong again and trying to talk down Bruticus at the end as well, rather than just, just to get, desperately get that bit of information on Starscream. Uh, I didn't mind the Chromia thing at the end either. I liked that she eventually stood up and took responsibility for her actions, even if possibly only because of Starscream having it as a sort of Damocles over her head. She probably wouldn't have ever done that uh, without that. But yeah, it, it got there in the end. Tom, what did you think of Wingblade in uh, the series? Um, I think it was wise for her to stop being the absolute central character. It's good that we're able to have a book where, you know, you can spend time with the Combaticon, spend time with Ironhide, and people aren't like, oh, well, Wingblade is, is just a cameo in her own book. Um, I think that that does the story much more credit as much as i like windblades um uh, as much as i like her her basic arc of someone who's naive who has to learn how to be bad in a way that doesn't completely compromise her and the way she often solves things is to talk to giants um you know there's there's she's not a she's not a character with a gigantic amount of depth and I think um, usually in 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 this setting, casting broader rather than deeper tends to work better because you know you've got to you, you do come up against those might cost a problems of like okay, so where did she grow up and who were her parents and if you really have to know someone, you've got to start using so many human and a- analogs that um, that things become sort of flat. I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. You don't have something similar in one of these young characters. Mm. You don't know necessarily a lot about their background, but you know who they are. Yes, that's true. You know how they respond. But more than me, I does spend a lot of page time devoted to establishing big 
historical events and um you know uh, just that world building i think um if it didn't have that world building if it did focus more on the characters it may not seem as special um uh-huh. and i think that's because you know you're in this fantasy science fiction se- setting where where that pays off um yeah sure we can we know who cyclonus and tailgate are but i think you'd be hard pressed to you you couldn't write a book about them but you could maybe write something quite substantial about the political and the political setting and the history of the world they inhabit and what they represent in that world Mm -hmm. do you agree yeah maybe maybe the anthropomorphism whether my costs are things you call it uh things never really bothered me anyway because I, I, I read as people basically to me i've always sort of accepted that conceit that in terms of personality they're basically human mm. uh, i think that's something you sort of roll with if you're going to read transformers anyway even if it's obvious that real life outer space robot people wouldn't be anything like humans in their outlook or worldview you uh you, you just sort of accept it as a, a thing to go with and a right from the start of a franchise really uh, like i said earlier the lead character is john wayne that's incredibly unlikely for, for, for an alien man um yeah i guess the bit that i object to is that you need to necessarily know someone's family background to know who they are um maybe that's a bad example i mean um not just family but then you know you kind of need to know a lot about where they're from Mm, I sure. Well, I think, I think you get a lot of that. Something though. about their background, and I agree with you. I think when it comes to Windblade, and a lot of the other colonists, in fact, it's just that Windblade has by now had so many books to herself that you should know a bit more about her, and that's the problem. Uh, that, well, yeah, when you want to focus on somebody like that, you need to give them something more substantial than just the fact that they want to be noble mm. and do the right thing. And that they're naive and are slowly catching up. That's not enough. That's not a personality. That's just a trope. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the, the you know the problem is is like one of bandwidth. You can't like you can't tell us they can't tell us what books Windblade has read because they would then need to write those books in order for them to be real and for them to to mean anything. Um, you can't tell us what um, what year she was born in and that to mean anything because you would have to now come up with the whole of history. Um, well, not necessarily. You know you know that Rodimus is, what was he? Four million plus a bit, right? Yeah. You, you know yeah. that Megatron is five million years old. You know that Optimus is slightly younger than... Like, these are things that are tiny, tiny details, but they kind of mean something. Mm-hmm. You don't need to know what was going on five million years ago to understand that necessarily. But I think it's that human thing that... He's slightly older or he's slightly younger. That kind of tells you something there. Mm, that's a very good point. Yeah, you can you can make these things relative. Um, knowing that yeah. Windblade enjoyed this, but then this other character didn't. That's that. Yeah, that's really all you need. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, and I tell you, you, you can sort of tell roughly what analogous human age characters are would be. Ironhide's clearly an old grizzled man. Uh, Blurs, a cool young dude, all that sort of sort of stuff. I don't 
You get the wonder get... sometimes, though, because they are they are all over four million years old. That the you know the main Cybertronians are at least. And uh, for example, how old is Ratchet? Why is he the old grumpy man? He can't be that old. <laughs> it's a, there's a bit of a Marvel Generation Two comic where Cup is berating Hot Rod for being like a young dick. <laughs> and he suddenly, he suddenly thinks, wait, is he being odd actually? Because I'm basically the same age as Hot Rod. <laughs> yeah, very strange thing for one to think to themselves. <laughs> uh, well, of course, if that sets up a buddy thing with Slate's role in the series when it turns out they're not all the same age, but uh, that's sort of one of the things that doesn't really make sense, but you sort of you roll with because it's it's fun to have Ratchet be an old man and. Uh, and for tailgate to be a baby. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 I totally agree. And uh, I don't. I, I'm not saying that the the Mike Costa problem um, is is as much as an obstacle as he found it to be, but just that it means that out of necessity to keep things rolling and even to keep characterization interesting, you 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 can't dig into one character as much as you could if they did live in a if they were more obviously human, if they had these same kinds of uh, lifespans and life experiences. You have to work harder to write Transformers, basically, is what we're saying, because they are not entirely analogous to... It's not that you don't... They don't come ready with their own world like humans do when you write. You have to think about it a little bit harder than that. Yeah, and of course that goes for all all fantasy, but then, you know, I think this is why a lot of these franchises work better as pros, um, because then you can take the time to really to, to waffle, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a curious one because it works both ways. You can just keep making shit up, mm. and that and that's great. You know, you can do it as long as it's coherent shit you're making up. You know, um, and you don't need to know anything you can just keep at it you know and then hopefully have a good editor that says actually that that can't work because three books back we said something else you know um whilst if you're trying to write something about i don't know historical fiction you know in, in real life then you kind of need to know your facts you can't just keep making shit up all the time i mean a lot of the transformers sort of family in inverted commas sort of social structures just strike me as being very uh klingon in that, uh, you know, in Star Trek, the Klingons are, I am Worf of the House of Mode. And she's Wingblade of uh, whichever one she's from. <laughs> I forgot her name. Caminus. Which has no countries. They sort of they have house structures and sort of like Dominus Ambus over in uh, uh, more than CI. They're sort of uh, not blood family, but they have social groups of their. They're a smaller part of a larger thing. Does that make any sense? I don't know. It it does. It does make sense. Not good. So we've we've talked about the first story, I think, a lot more. So what do you think about the current storyline? So from issue five to seven, where we are now, uh, we've had our kind of murder mystery, uh, well, story. Now we are on to full-on war. We are into the uh, the hangover of Titan's return. Well, the actual Titans return, I would say. But this is the story where they return. Which... <laughs> this is the story that never happened. Uh, I've read uh, issue 7 only today, and I have to say, it was a cliffhanger. And personally, I'm excited. I want to know what's happening. Who, who is this guy? Who is this Vigilum, or however you're supposed to pronounce his name? 
Ah, did uh, it, that's from was slightly set up in the revolution uh, issue where it was established that that's uh, the liege Maximo's Titan. Oh. Uh, but that was just like one line mention. I, I didn't really feel the cliffhanger to issue seven because it's like, we don't know the Titan that they thought it was. We don't really know the Titan that it turns out to actually be other than it's a naughty person's Titan. <laughs> So it's some. It's not the one guy we didn't know. It's another guy we don't really know. It's... See, yeah, I am disappointed now. When I didn't know anything about them, I thought, oh, this is curious. Now that you've told me that, I'm like, uh, okay, then. <laughs> but uh, but for, for, for three issues as a whole, though, what I really liked is how fast-paced it is. There's a lot of scene cutting in that issue five, where it's just jumping back and forth, and it's like a very the three issues, I'm assuming it's going to be a four-issue arc, but I'm not entirely sure about that, but the three issues have a very clear three, uh, well, presumably four-act structure where each one has basically, there's a bit of overlap of the cliffhangers and we've got a, a, a different focus. So the first one is the Titans are coming, yeah, they're getting ready for it, and then the second one is basically the fights with the Titans, uh, and the third one is the caper, where it's like Hustle or something like that, where they're trying to get in and... Uh, uh, steal the thing. Mm. So I sort of like it. It's sort of one plot, but it's keeping it fresh. It's always moving. It never really uh, stops. I mean, my, my notes about three issues are just like lots of little short bullet points because it's just going like yeah, it, like that all the way through. It's kind of it's 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 using the comic comic format much more effectively, I think, because each issue is a different sort of story, or at least has a different perspective. Um. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel like you know, part two of this episode. You know, it just, it, it, the, um, the problem with Scott's writing generally has been like it feels like an end of an issue is actually an ad break, but then you've got to wait one or possibly three months to get the next to get uh, the next part of it, and then by then the momentum's sort of gone. It's interesting you're saying that because to me a lot of it. But now that you you know now I'm thinking back, it was just a issue five that did quite a lot of action. Uh, but to me, that just like I read that in five minutes. Mm. Uh, for me, action in comics doesn't work very well. Um, I'm just looking at it and I'm just skipping it basically. Um, whilst in an in an episode, it would be a lot more exciting. Yes, it's it's just very hard, especially with time. It's very hard to do fights between different sizes of transformers in comics mm. uh, because you can't really do the scale thing very well. It's much easier to do. In, I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. It's much easier to do in cartoons and films where you can pull out and move the camera about and all that. Yeah. I thought this worked yeah. reasonably well in that they, redes- they did it just, all the titles did it just look like Metroplex. Uh, they were all redesigned so that it was easier to tell who was the good guy was. Uh, no, I suppose the fight stuff, yeah, was generally a bit weak. There was some good character stuff in there as well with everybody be like of hell <laughs> and reacting to the situation. I loved Obsidian. Let's uh, go. Yeah, there's, a, there's an army of undead titans coming down on us. Uh, they're saying it as if it's the most normal thing <laughs> for the world. Uh, I think he's very sarcastic about Combiner Wars as well, uh, but I'm not sure if it's him or not. He's like, he's like oh, oh, yeah, that's uh, from the so called Combiner Wars. <laughs> oh, you know, Obsidian. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really like how um, Elita Wan, even though she functions as a villain in this arc, um, really, she and her crew, are, they would take pains to show that she's not, uh, you know, incompetent. Like, you can, you do 
you do feel sympathetic and you also feel that like this is someone who has been keeping it together for uh, longer than human civilization has existed Mm. and there's more to her than what we've seen so far obviously yeah yeah and to her colony yeah I thought she was uh, the best written she's been so far in, in, in this. Uh, mainly as you said, because I think that's got most of her. Uh, same for her uh, Obsidian and Striker as well. I love the Striker uh, Devastator fight in issue five, actually. I thought that was just quite funny when they're sarking at one another. That was. Uh, uh, oh, the punch. Quite well done. Yeah. Oh, you don't know Devastator? Oh, well, screw you. I, I don't write good dialogue. <laughs> Uh, but the only thing that really confused me is why they were so keen to get Alita's Titan in. They were like, oh, that's the only thing we could possibly save us when Metroplex hadn't done much good. It's only like they just want to swap one Titan for another. I wasn't sure why they thought this other Titan would be better, would do better than Metroplex did. Metroplex was not 100%, but he had done very well. It's just that he was on his own. So I read it as if they had another Titan, they'd probably be all right, but they didn't. Mm. Uh, so Metroplex just got overwhelmed and then they didn't have anything else. They cut his brain out, which I thought was so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way we can help. I'm not, I haven't actually been defeated yet. No, we've got to cut your brain out again. <laughs> they did that in Dark Cybertron, though, didn't they? Didn't they move his brain to his shoulder yeah. or something? Yeah. Yeah, um, Yeah. I, I, I think it's... it's um, Despite the fact that the, the whole arc has been delayed by, I guess, things beyond anyone's control... And that it feels a bit weird that you know, Titan's return seems very much over, um, but now he's still having to deal with as exactly it's just as, as you say the, the hangover. Um, yeah, apart if we if we excuse that, um, yeah, I think it's a it's a really nicely put together uh, little story. Um, I agree that I'm not particularly, yeah, you know, I don't really care about Liege Maximo's Titan. Um, I'd, I'd much rather see. I'd much rather spend more time with the combat battlecons and um, get more onto the, the class aspect they uh, started with. The kind of the oh, they're all brain dead now. They've all yeah, swindle. That um, that space opera vibe is is um, less interesting than the the sociology. I think. I just want to praise a little bit the art in these books as well. Oh yes, yeah. God, Sarah's art is gorgeous, and I'm just checking now to see Call of Duty has been mostly Journal of Winter. It started off with Priscilla Tramontana, uh, but lately it's been mostly Journal of Winter. I haven't really noticed much of a difference between them. They've kept the same style, and um, I thought the colors, especially in issue 7 by Joanna, were uh, really lovely, uh, especially the ones where you can see like the starry sky and the titan in the background and things. Really nicely done. Um, yeah, I think we've got some really strong artists working currently in Transformers and uh, Kazam as well on uh, Optics. Oh, that book looks so good. Oh, it's a very different style, but that is such good art. Mm. That is very good art. But yeah, I'm really enjoying um, Sarah Peter Jurache's art in this. Yeah, it's 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 um yeah. it's incredibly consistent as well. Um, mm-hmm. You can read it in a way that. Um, in a way you just don't really have to think about. Um, you know, I know, I know a lot of the, the story is talking heads, but even the action, which, you know, we've said is, is difficult to convey, apart from some slightly unconvincing scales of titans and stuff, which I understand is kind of necessary, um, just to, you know, there's only so much page space. 
uh, yeah, there's very, I didn't really remember any times where I was confused about what was going on or what I was supposed to be looking at. Uh, even the thing where if you don't know who Vigilum is, you're still like, there are scary eyes here and you, you know, the Windblade, strange uh, kind of saint-like pose, like martyrdom pose. Um, it definitely looks like bad news. I especially love the way she goes when you play it. It's this sort of her whole style is um, it's not simple, but neither is it this over technical. I think if I were to compare it, not that it looks similar, but I think it has that kind of Nick Roachness in that it's technical enough, but not quite. It's very easy on the eyes, as you say, mm. but it doesn't feel simplistic. It's very expressive. But it doesn't look anything like Nick's art. It's just that kind of level of it, if you will. But I love her windblade. There's something very loving about the way she draws her. Because um, she looks both kind of fierce and fragile at the same time. Um, I really like that. Yeah, I've got the windblade toy. And uh, usually I keep her in jet mode around my desk. And when I kind of transform her, and she's got that like quite mean face. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the Milne face, I think. That's kind of how Alex Milne draws it. Oh, okay. A lot more warrior-like. Yeah, I'm kind of get a bit, get a bit upset. <laughs> uh. I just kind of talk about the the revolution issue of about um, how different the art is, and um, <laughs> that doesn't quite cross the line to cheesecake, um, but uh, to Shishima really draws Windblade, you know, quite, quite buxom, uh, quite squishy uh, in a way that, that it's nearly appropriate for the story because it is like kind of a bondage, uh, torture scene kind of story. I haven't read it yet, but I am very fond of Naruto Chisima's art, so I'm very curious now. Yeah, it, 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 just, it just seems like it's... Um, uh, you know, it's a credit to, to Sarah that she feels to have really have owned the character and the fact that any anything that isn't quite the way she draws Windblade, um, you know, it feels, it feels a bit off and a, a little bit um, disrespectful to this fictional person. Well, I suppose sort of as, as it's come up, uh, but it's the other to all in one thing, sort of very briefly because Marion hasn't read it. I haven't read any of the rest of the crossover and I don't really understand Micronauts or what's going on there. So Tom, as a person who has read all of Revolutions, uh, Till All of One Revolution, was it shit or was it good? It was a bit weird, uh, but I quite like that, that it was weird. You kind of had to use Titan magic in order to throw Windblade into the microverse which is like a pocket universe, which was started by like the prime of the Minicons uh, for some reason. And uh, I think it's where he hid when Galvatron started coming for him or something like that. Um, and uh, inside this universe, you know, there are just all these people who have started like a space empire and now it's in decline. And now I guess because Micronus Prime is in a bad way, the universe is ending. That's the premise. And then the Micronauts are this, you know, Firefly team who have escaped that. And they're in our universe, but they're tiny. That's the premise. Um, wow, that, that sounds exhausting just <laughs> listening to you say that. <laughs> so Windblade gets teleported to go meet Micronus Prime, who at this point we assumed was dead. It was to, we were told quite, um, quite explicitly that he was dead. 
So we're not sure if that's really him. And then he then teleports her as an energy avatar into the microverse. But now she's microverse sized so that she can have like an S&M session with the baddie's wife. See, I've read this and uh, I'm still confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, I am on Comixology. I have purchased this issue now and honestly, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Is it me or did Micronus Prime look quite like Nickel as well? Sort of yeah. blue, bluish, round person. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they've drawn him to resemble the way he does in, in uh, the Robots in Disguise TV show where he crops up. Um, and I think that's just a coincidence that he looks like Nickel. Uh, to wrap up, there, sort of any other last general points you want to make about the series as a whole? or Starscream, what the fuck is happening with Bumblebee? Yes. <laughs> well... I like the fact that he's not even hiding the fact he's having conversations with himself um, now and every people are, again it's sort of a Trump thing where Airways is standing next to him looking at him having a conversation with himself that's just he's gone a bit crazy do we is this a good thing to carry on with this guy in charge what uh, do we think Bumblebee's real or not um, it's been it's so it's been so obvious for so long that Starscream is losing his mind. I guess the only real satisfying storytelling beat you can do is that he's not losing his mind. Well, the thing is, even if Starscream is not in... Sorry, even if Bumblebee is not in Starscream's head, the fact that Starscream has started, you know, losing touch with the fact that people don't know that he can see him and he's talking to himself mm. in itself means that Starscream is starting to lose it a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good point. So this has been going on. Was it Robots in the Skies we started in, or was it the Wingblade series? I can't quite remember. I mean, it's, it's been at least uh, probably close to a couple of years, hasn't it? Because I think it was almost immediately after Bumblebee died, he started popping up again. Mm. Uh, so it's sort of it's always been quite brought out, but I'm still enjoying it. Uh, I mean, like, like Thundercracker writing joke, which I'm quite bored of now. Uh, it's, it's sort of the same thing, yeah, the issue. Starscream has a conversation with Bumblebee, somebody walks in and goes, you talk to me? No, I'm not talking to you. It's sort of exactly the same gag every time, but I'm still enjoying it. I'm not, I'm not I sure guess it has a... It, possibly because it's escalating as well. That's uh, It has a plot function, or a narrative, narrative function, which I guess means it's, it's more than just a dumb gag. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of Shakespearean, isn't it? Like, you know, it's, it's Hamlet speaking out loud all of his actions. Um and speaking to ghosts uh, so that you, you, we, the audience, get a better idea of what's going on inside his head. Um, I guess it's a way of co-opting... It's, it's Al from Quantum Yeah, it, it's a way of co-opting those first-person narration panels from Robots in Disguise and just making it, um, I guess, more interesting. I, I, I like to think of it as a parody of uh, Hamlet, where <laughs> no. everybody just turns around and looks at him and goes, who is he talking to? <laughs> Oh, uh, one question I had uh, but didn't really come up. Uh, who actually killed the Decepticon in the first issue? Was it Blastoff in disguise, or was it an actual police brutality murder by a real Badgeless? Or I, because I, I... that never sort of they never solve that murder. That's sort of a driving thrust of the first issue because they get distracted by Combaticons. <laughs> so that poor guy gets forgotten about and lost. 
Uh, very good point. Yeah, um, I, I always just assumed it was Blastoff because he's he's a baddie and he said he would and and, and, and such. Does that hurt the police brutality theme? If if the police were framed for for murder of a black man by a by another black man? Hmm. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> We're unraveling this as analog. <laughs> oh dear! But <laughs> well, that was one of the things that let me baffle anyway. But. Uh... Yeah, I think that we've covered just about everything, haven't we? Is there anything else anybody wanted to touch on? Um, ah, just just in summary, I think this was this is a really great little series, and um, it's a shame that we we've been overlooking it. I think. Um, yeah, well, I think we've said before. I mean, it's, it's not just us, but it's people don't talk enough about this book. I think. Uh, I mean, mo- I think mo- it's fair to say most of the attention goes on more than CI, Stroke, Lost Lights. Uh, most of the advertising as since relaunch has gone on Optimus Prime. Uh, and so because it's one sort of miss for being push relaunch by starting before, it's it's not quite as if you have a crack, so you don't see much as much talk about it as as with the other books. And it's a really good, enjoyable book. It's been consistent over a period of inconsistency at in IDW and odd things going on. It's sort of been a good, steady... I mean, Steady is a terrible thing to call a, a series. You know, it's always insulting. You know, it's, uh, that quote uh, from Babylon 5, where it goes, Steady ain't sexy. Uh, but it is solid and uh, very enjoyable. I have been enjoying this series. If this was the sole Transformers book out there, I would be a lot more critical of it. But I think I am kind of taking the bits out of each book that I enjoy at the moment and being grateful that we have three series running and that they are all doing their own thing. So for what it is, Lola One, I find it a enjoyable book. I would like to know where it's all going. I mean, it still has all the colonies to play with, so I kind of wish that it would in a more substantial level, like let us find out a little bit more about what's going on out there in those other worlds. Um... But yeah, I am I am on board for this one. Hmm. So, folks, uh, that's uh, been another great episode. Uh, we will be back soon in your ears with another exciting discussion of probably Transformers comics, I would imagine. Uh, Tom and Marion, would you like to give people your Twitter handles and anything you would like uh, folks to go look at? No. <laughs> no don't do me. Um... <laughs> My, uh, was, that, was that a joke or you, you, you're stonewalling? <laughs> no, you can't, Tom. You're nice. I, I like you. you can... <laughs> I don't want people reading my Twitter. Are you insane? <laughs> but if anybody would like to, it's more tough. Uh, I, I do another podcast, a audio drama uh, called The Saga of the European King. And this month, February the 25th, we're releasing chapter 25. That has something special for Transformers fans. Uh, we have the fella who narrated the lady the, the ladybird audio books uh what lightning strike um and so forth he is playing the president of the united states in the saga of the european king um and uh won't that be good everybody you've got gary kagan um peter marinka Oh no! Sorry, I was going to say uh, uh, Garrick did. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but he did uh, 
special teams audio. Ah, yeah, so I guess I, there were several my, uh, audio uh, yeah. I, I, I was, I was going to be impressed you got somebody from Star Wars who was dead, <laughs> which was very impressive. But no, it's, yes, I was thinking of a different person. Uh, yes, Peter Marinka uh, yeah. is a special guest star on Saga of the European King. Uh, he's a, uh, a great old actor who's been in just about everything. Um, and uh, yeah, very lucky to have him. Tom's Twitter, by the way, is at Tyrone McNally, if you want to look him up. Uh, I am at Inflatable Dalek, of course. And you can still buy my guide to the British Transformers comic, Transformation Volume 1, and look at the updates for the website version every week. It's going to be the 1989 annual and Christmas issue next week. How exciting is that? Christmas hats, decorations, wonderful stuff. And you can also still buy my original short story in the Fitting In anthology. I've just had the, uh, the edit, final edit for my next short story, which involves people called uh, Hilditch and McNally in some capacity, so all of their fans will have to buy that to... Uh, also, there's a mention of the DJD as well, so all the DJD fans should go by too for competitism's sake. And uh, also buy crumpets. I'd go with the White Rose ones uh, that Marion was eating. They uh, looked a bit nicer than the Tesco ones. <laughs> and on that note, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.